Um, if you want to turn with me, we're going we're gonna to read uh, Hebrews chapter 12. We've already read the first three verses, um, so we've only the other 25 to go. Um, The, the sermon tonight, because my favorite verses in the whole of the Bible are Hebrews chapter, one, or Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, um, the focus of the sermon tonight is going gonna, is gonna to mostly be there. Um, but this is an incredible chapter of Scripture. There's so much in here. And so I think it's important that we, we read through the whole thing um, and see what's going on. And we will be thinking about it a little bit. So that's uh, page 1210 of the Pew Bibles. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll start uh, at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, We have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, 
the judge of all men, to the spirits of the righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. So here we are again. Um, We've been on quite a journey this year through Hebrews. I think the first one was the 9th of September. And here we are in June, still plugging away. And the great thing about it is that the whole way through, we have been reminded constantly that there is no plan B. No other way to get to God. No other way to deal with the consequences of sin. No other way to have the life that God offers us, both here and in the world to come, except for Christ. Jesus is better. Better than anything else we can put our trust in. No matter how familiar, no matter how easy, no matter how much it looks like faith, anything that is less than Jesus, less than God's salvation plan, is really nothing at all. This is the issue the writer has been dealing with the whole way through. These Jewish Christians facing persecution and difficulty everywhere they go are being sorely tempted to accept a faith that is less than Christ, to go back to Judaism, which was still socially and culturally acceptable, to fit in with the world around them, and its fallen, broken practices, rather than to stand out from the crowd and model and tell something better, no matter the consequences. The writer so far has looked at Jewish myths, Jewish heroes, and Jewish religious practice. He's looked at at almost every major aspect of the life they're considering going back to. And he's shown them convincingly in every case that Jesus is better. And now after making this, this strong case to these Christians and to us, the writer turns to talk practically about how we can keep going and growing in the Christian life. He starts with a therefore. He's saying, in light of everything I've shown you about the greatness of Christ, in light of everything I've shown you about the rubbishness of everything except Christ, let me show you what this life with Christ is going to look like. And he uses three very distinctive pictures to make his point. The race, the father, 
and the mountain. It kind of sounds like a bad knockoff of a Narnia book, doesn't it? I'm not sure the race, the dad, and the mountain has quite the same ring to it as the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And we could use these separate pictures to look at each of these different things. But actually, the the thread that runs through this whole section of the letter is all about the race. Really, what this chapter is saying to us is get running, keep running, and know where you're running to. And I think that's how we're going we're gonna to look at it this evening. So first, the, the writer brings us to the Olympics, or at least to, to a big race in a coliseum. The stands are packed, ready to cheer on those of us who are currently running this Christian race. We're getting ready to start. But this is, this is no normal crowd of bystanders. This is not a crowd of people who have, who have paid to get in to see this race. The crowd around us, the crowd that are cheering us on, giving us encouragement, are those who have already won the prize. They are those who have run before us. Those heroes of faith. Those from chapter 11, the rest of scripture. Those from the last 2,000 years of church history. And those spiritual heroes of ours, those who raised us in the faith, those who have influenced and grown us and have finished their race and taken their place in the crowd. Monty, a few weeks ago at a morning service, opened up Hebrews 11 for us. And in a way, he he turned the whole thing on its head. Reminding us that these, these heroes of faith, the ones who ran before us, and many who said that many who God said ran well, were far from perfect. Many stumbled and fell. They found hurdles that they had to, to get over. Some were slowed. Some veered off the track for a while, or even ran in the wrong direction for a time. But what Monty reminded us is that that this race is one that all who run in win. Because Christ has run it before us. He perfectly finished the race, the only one who ever did. And he shares his prize with all of us who run. In fact, he now runs with us. Guiding us, pushing us, encouraging us to keep going to reach our finish line well. The writer to the Hebrews, he knows this. He knows that this crowd of witnesses have all run in Christ, that they all finished in Christ. But many have run poorly at times. And so he gives us some advice about how to get running and keep running well. First of all, the writer tells us to throw off, throw off our hindrances and sins. I don't know if you're aware of how people ran in these big races in the Greek world. There was no such thing as lycra. If they wanted to run well and meet the least resistance, they took off all of their clothes. They ran completely naked. Some even shaved their entire bodies from head to toe. They removed everything and anything that would hinder or slow them down. What about us? How well are we running? Are we stripping off anything and everything that gets in the way? 
I remember sp- speaking on these verses at a camp, uh, and we were speaking in a really big sports hall, and we were in one little part of it, and I got one of the, the really sporty guys to, to race me around the room, um, and he beat me easily. But then we loaded him up. We gave him a big heavy rucksack. We gave him weights that he had to carry, and I raced him again, and I trounced him. Not, not necessarily something to be proud of, but it's exactly the same for us. Often we are bogged down with sin that we're just happily continuing in. Anything that that breaks the Ten Commandments or the spirit that they're written in, anything that goes against or is outside of God's word or is unlike the character of Christ is sin. Get rid of it. Pray about it. Ask God's help to change your heart and break its hold. It works. Openly confess it to those you trust. Get help from other runners, from other Christians to help you strip yourself of that weight. And then keep an eye out on you to watch to make sure you don't start bogging yourself down with that weight all over again. It's the same with hindrances. What's a hindrance in terms of this, what he's saying here? Well, It's something that isn't necessarily sinful in itself. It can even be something that's very good. But it's something that you have made more important than Christ in your life. If your eyes are focused on your job or money or sports or hobbies or family even, or any number of good things, then they're not focused on Christ. I used to run in the the Lisbon Half Marathon every year. You wouldn't believe that now, but I did. And I once saw a man who ran smack bang into a lamppost. Why? He was running in a large banana costume. And clearly, he hadn't trained wearing this costume. He was struggling. His head was down. He was looking at his feet. His eyes were on the ground. He wasn't focused on where he was going. And so he veered slowly off and disaster struck. If we want to run well, we need to throw off all hindrances and sins. We need to strip for action. If you're not growing as a disciple of Christ, if you're not becoming more Christ-like as you journey with him, the likelihood is that you're being slowed and distracted by things that you won't let go of. Strip for action. Get rid of it. These these Jewish Christians, they knew all too well that the Christian life was not an easy stroll. That's why the writer calls them to run and to run with endurance. Recognizing that we're not running in a random race that goes on forever, but a race marked out for us. By our creator, a race designed to build us up to be the people God desires for us to be and to bring glory and honor to his kingdom. That's why we can run no matter what struggles we face, what hurdles we encounter, because we know this is the race that God has called us to run. And he knows that we can run it well. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. 
No long-distance runner ever enters a marathon thinking it's going to be easy. They know that at any time they could hit the wall. They could face injury, pain, mental or physical fatigue. But yet those who have trained know that if they endure, they can make it to the finish. The race we each run is one that is designed for us. It's one that we can run. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. We must endure. Knowing that God has placed the difficulties there for his good purposes. And that he will see us through. The world today, it bombards us with messages and influences that say a life outside of Christ, that's where the good life is. That's where the fun is. That's where you can, you can follow your heart. Chart your own path. Love without boundaries. It all sounds great. But it's only when you look under the surface, you see just how broken and damaging and bankrupt that kind of life really is. The writer to the Hebrews wrote to a group like that. They were about to walk away from real life and look for life in something that was dead. The whole purpose of this letter is to remind them of who Jesus is and what he's done. And in verses two and three, there is this incredible summary of the teaching around Jesus up to this point. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What have we learned about Jesus in this series, in these verses even? He is the author, the pioneer of our faith. He set the race and he ran it first. He won and he now shares his victory with his people. He sits now by the throne of God, interceding on behalf of us, bringing us before the throne, before our Father. We see that he faced more opposition, both physically and spiritually, than we can even imagine. And now through the Holy Spirit, he runs with us, helping those of us he's brought into this race to finish well and receive the prize. And that's just scratching the surface. Fix your eyes on him. Consider him always. And you won't run into any lampposts. No, you won't stop running. Verses 5 to 17 are a kind of a difficult section for some of us, maybe. They're all about the discipline of God. That some of what we, we have to endure and struggle with on our journey is actually put there by God. And the writer, to, to frame his point, he uses a very different example. He could stick with the, the race analogy. He could talk about a coach disciplining their trainee, pushing them to achieve their very best, even when it's sometimes not pleasant. But instead, he uses the example of a father disciplining his children, not out of anger 
or sadism or to push us to achieve or succeed, but out of love. Parents at their best discipline their children not to punish them, but to help them grow, to understand how to live well in the world, to not be selfish, to think of others, to know the difference between right and wrong, and to make good choices. Discipline from a loving, caring parent is never fun for the child or the parent. But those of us who have faced it, and those of us who have maybe had to deal it out at times, have hopefully seen the benefit of it to our formation as human beings and citizens of this world. And God, he disciplines us for exactly the same reason. He wants us to keep running well as citizens of heaven living on earth. As his children, still so young in our knowledge and understanding of him, in almost constant need of God's loving correction to keep us going, to keep us between the lines, running the race. The discipline shown to us here on earth by fathers or families or carers or teachers or whoever, even if well-intentioned, is sometimes flawed and misguided. But not so with God. We should be willing to accept God's loving correction when it comes our way. Because it's not designed to make us resentful or to hurt us, but to make us holy able to live more fully for God and shine brighter for him in this world. In verses 12 and 13, we we jump back to the racetrack. Your race is marked out for you. No one else can run it. It's yours, prepared for you by God who knows that you can complete it. Every hurdle, every suffering, every difficulty if met with a godly attitude, will help to shape you and refine you into the runner God needs you to be so you can better run for him, better serve him, better bring him glory and live out your faith in this world. So pick yourself up and get going. Show those who aren't yet running that this race is the only one worth finishing. Look at verse 13. So that the lame, those who aren't running, will be healed. So that those who aren't in this race will come to start it and run it with you. That's what God's discipline is designed to do, to make us shine even brighter so that others will come and enter this race with us. Verses 14 to 17 are a picture of what the life of a disciplined runner looks like. The one who is becoming more holy. They are people who seek peace, who live godly lives, who are concerned for those who are not running, who are forgiving, sexually pure, godly and in public and in private. And ultimately, they're those who have their eyes fixed firmly on Jesus and not the things of this world, like Esau, who gave up his place and future in the covenant family of God for his own instant gratification, for his earthly wants and desires. Do you want to be holy? 
Do you want to grow more and more Christ-like as you run this race? Then don't despise or reject God's discipline. Accept it. He is our loving, gracious Father. And his discipline is like everything else about him. It's perfect. Accept his loving correction. Keep your eyes on him in the good times and the bad, knowing that he is refining you into what you need to be to serve his kingdom, to finish well, and to draw others into this race that leads to glory. I wonder, are we willing to accept God's discipline? And then very quickly, to finish this this last section, verses 18 to 29, these two mountains that we see and the idea of where is it that we are running to? The two mountains in view here are Sinai, where the law was given, and Zion, the mountain of the, the new heavenly Jerusalem, the kingdom of God come to earth. He's saying to these Jewish, Jewish Christians who are thinking of, of walking away, he's saying, look guys, where are you heading? Which way are you going? Back to Sinai? Where we are, we are eternally separated from God by our sin? Where his holiness will literally burn us up? Where his glory and majesty are terrifying to those who are outside of his grace? Is that really where you want to go? Because you see, you're now people of a different mountain. Mount Zion the eternal city of God, where there is not fear, but abundant life, a place of glory and perfection that we get to enter because Christ has made us perfect by his blood, his blood which covers our sin and brings us into the very family of God our Father. This is where you're running to. So keep going. And it's the same for us. So often we have our eyes fixed firmly on the things of this world. Things that distract us from the race. We so often proclaim Christ with our lips, but in our hearts we're all about the here and now. A life lived outside of a relationship with Christ is a Sinai life. Separation from a holy God. Fear for our future and ultimately the punishment that we rightly deserve for living as enemies of our king. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him always. Psalm 130 says, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Where are you heading? Those final verses, they remind us that that Christ will return, that the earth and everything that is fallen and temporary is going to disappear, but God's perfect eternal kingdom will remain, a kingdom of life that we have received entry to through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the prize for which we run, and it's already secured for us. So how's your race going? Have you stripped off everything that slows you down? Are you running with endurance? Are your eyes fixed on Jesus? 
Are you willing to be trained and disciplined by your loving father? And do you know where you're running to? To stand as princes and princesses in the unshakable, eternal, abundant kingdom of our father and our king. So spirit, come. Put strength in every stride. Give grace for every hurdle that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. A saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace. We hear their call and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory.